Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name is Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Spirit Island. But before we do, we've got something to celebrate. Guys, we've been doing this podcast for three years as of this week. Three full years of weekly episodes. We have not missed a single episode. Can you believe that happened? I no, I cannot. Other than eating and breathing, I can't think of anything else I've done consistently every, well, I guess going to work too. Never mind. There's all <laughs> kinds of things that I've done regularly for three years. To celebrate our three-year anniversary, instead of doing a poll question this week, instead I, I put out the question on social media to all of our listeners and asked them what their favorite episode was of the last three years. I, f- I thought it'd be fun to take a little trip down memory lane and give us a chance to think back on some of the episodes we recorded, but also for people that are newer that have started listening to us more recently, this might give you a little tip of some of the episodes you should go back and check out, even if you're not going all the way back to the beginning. So I uh, put this out on several social media platforms, and I'm I'm not going to read every response, even though we had some really funny and, and heartwarming responses from people, but I will mention the episodes that people recommended or that they really enjoyed. And then I've got just a couple comments. I'll read through this. So first, starting out on Twitter, Bray Funk, he indicated that he sort of listened to us right when Smartphone Inc. episode dropped and he picked up the game. So and he's been with us ever since. So Smartphone Inc. Uh, Joe said she loves the top 10 or top five list. Dean from Meeple Town Games said Yokohama. Might be because he was on that episode. I don't know. <laughs> Seth Gonzalez said he loves the listener top 20 board games that we did last year, specifically because of Board Game Chatterbox's segment. He's like, I could listen to her say anything on there. So that's our good. <laughs> yes. That's our friend Leanne, also known as Board Game Chatterbox over on Twitter. And you might hear from her later down in this segment as well. Randy Montero said Hegemony, which was a new episode, but uh, he said he really enjoyed that episode. Mm. We had a lot of people just tell us what episodes they love. But we also just had some really nice comments when we were talking about celebrating three years. Joe over on Twitter said, I have a 15-minute commute every day, so I listen to lots of podcasts, mainly about board games. Since I found yours, I don't miss one. I like that you're not trying too much. You keep to the subject, you talk in normal tone, and most of all, you help me decide if a game is for me or not. So thank you, Joe. Wonderful that you're with us and and paying attention every week and it actually we got a lot of answers like that people saying like yeah i've been listening for years and i listen every week and that just amazes me so thanks joe and and everyone else that's out there Uh, on facebook sean cheney said he loved our yearly top games lists uh dean ogden he reminded me about how we did the double feature of voidfall and fractal these were two big 4x games that were out on kickstarter at the same time and we were interested in both you know, that was probably the hardest we ever worked for this show because mm, we had to sure. sit there, learn these heavy games that didn't even have like finished rule books and stuff, play them, record them, edit two episodes in one week. So thanks for calling that one out, Dean. I hope it was worth it. Seth Gonzalez back over here on uh, back over here on Facebook as well. Yes, you can follow us on multiple platforms if you want to. Uh, but he said the top games of all time 2022 episode. And that was because I gave him a shout out on that show. That was right after I got a chance to meet Seth in person. I was traveling for work and we hung out, played some games together. So Seth, that was a super fun time and glad you remembered that one. And then he also said he loved the A Feast for Odin episode because of Chris's mead segment. Chris, uh, Seth is a, is a big mead fan. So 
And then Ray Meyer said, my favorite time was when Chris's top games were filled with games that weren't thematic or pretty. When I saw the frame Clemens Franz artwork in his game area, I knew he turned a corner. Uh, <laughs> clearly uh, being totally nice. sarcastic there because that's never happened. <laughs> yeah, clearly. It's the wrong show. Yeah. <laughs> wrong, wrong show. That's the alternative unit. There's the multiverse uh, board game hot takes. And then a longtime listener, Brian Schindler, just left a nice note saying, so glad I found the BGHT podcast three years ago. It's still my favorite podcast. Thanks for continuing to listen, Brian. All right. Over on Threads, one of our new social media platforms we've been using, uh, Meeple and the Moose said Hegemony, where we were bickering about whether accounts is streamlined or not. Uh, So a lot of people said they really enjoyed, you know, just our our banter with each other, which I think is so funny to me because I, I feel when I hear myself talk, I'm like, oh, you're so dry. You never say anything funny. But a lot of people think we have good banter. So that's cool. Well, they're talking about me and Chris. <laughs> that's, right. that's probably right. Okay. So Sylvie Leah, which was it's Board Game Chatterbox, but she's got a different name over here on threads. She said, happy anniversary. Love my weekly dose of hot takes. I think a favorite episode was when you announced your new name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just a little note on that. If you haven't listened back about two years, at one point we made a big announcement that we were going to change our name, pulled our listeners, and then ultimately never did it. We got a new logo though. Yes, we did. We did. We we're like, well, we're not going to change the name. Let's at least do a new logo. And I love that. And then she also said, I also love the episodes where you reflect on your BGHT mini cons. It's fun hearing how your trips have gone. Love the weekly polls. Here's to more years. Thanks, Leanne. It's been great having you as a listener and chatting with us on social media and stuff. You're one of our favorites still. All right. And then, so I also posted this out on Board Game Geek. I just made a post in like their podcast section, which I never really do anything in, but I was just like, just in case... We have some listeners maybe that are on Board Game Geek, but they don't use other social medias. I wanted to give them a chance to answer. And we got a shocking number of responses on here. That was so cool to see a lot of people I'd never interacted with on social media that were telling us how much they listened. Jim Nushnawar, as well as Pablo Schulman, both said they love our best of lists. Bishop over there said he loved our gaming con recaps. Kai Nuber eclipse second dawn for the galaxy and he mentioned that one of the reasons he really loved it is because i pointed out how that game can just feel so painful and and he's like it reminded me of my play of it it was like risk on steroids or something like that so (laughs) so they i'm glad i'm glad you got the same feels i did uh kaya tatnall loved our top five board game designers episode and Samuel K said that he loved the game review episodes, but especially loves the poll topics. And I had a few people comment that they just they liked that poll segment at the beginning. I always have that. I, I think it's a fun conversation, too. So glad people are liking it. Emma Lander said they loved the Lacrimosa episode, which was cool because I also actually just got a chance to play Lacrimosa this last weekend for the first time since we recorded that episode. Wow, that was such a fun game and, and fun to uh, revisit the memories from that episode. So I might actually have to go back and listen to that one. And uh, cardboard RJ mentioned that he really loved the heat versus downforce conversation. He's like, you were kind of, you know, light on this game. That's super hot right now. And so we'll see probably once he plays, he's going to hate us for not agreeing on it. All right. And then uh, Kev, Kev, Kev said episodes where we bring our partners and other female friends on, which was great call out because we love having them on the show as well. But then he he commented again. He said, I must also say you're my favorite podcast when I go grocery shopping, which is weird because now I have your voice stuck in my mind whenever I enter the shop, even without the podcast. <laughs> how about some salad in your voice? Ha <laughs> ha. Well, Kev, 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 now you just heard me say, how about some salad? And now you've really got it stuck in your, in your head next time. Well, if you're listening in the grocery store right now, um, you know, go check out the sales on aisle three. I think they're, I think they're hot tonight. 
Um, okay, and then one last comment from Board Game Geek. This was Kizdi said, I've been listening to you guys for almost a year now. I start every Sunday morning with your podcast and immensely enjoy your content. You guys have a great chemistry and I can tell that you're all having fun playing games and talking about them, which is the most important thing. I really wish you'd have a video recording the podcast just to see the faces behind the voices and also the reaction to the jokes and fun banter between you guys. Congrats and keep up the good work. Thanks, Kizzy. That was really nice because I think about this all the time because I have a great time laughing with you guys when we're recording these episodes. And I always think like, man, it'd be fun to just put this video up. And then I think of how much work it would be to like edit it and cut out the stuff where we stop and have to restart a segment or all of that stuff. And uh, we're, we're kind of lazy. So I don't I wouldn't count on it. But who knows, maybe one day I'll I'll have some free time and I'll I'll give that a shot and see how it goes. But then we'll also have to explain to people how the laughter is always dubbed in. Yeah, <laughs> that's the laugh tracks. That's right. And also we might actually have to like look good on camera <laughs> and you know, who wants to do that? All right. Well, anyway, thank you everybody for celebrating three years with us and joining us over all these episodes. Lots of new listeners recently, I know. So if, if you're new to the show, hopefully that gives you some idea of some episodes maybe to go back and check out because other listeners have enjoyed them. But in any case... Thank you all for being with us, for chatting with us on social media and coming and join us for the show every week. All right. You got to hear the episodes that our listeners love. So give me your favorite episode that we ever recorded. I thought those were some great picks, first of all. And it was fun hearing those. I'd forgotten about some of those episodes and hearing listeners talk about them makes me want to go back and listen to it. I think Lacrimosa, I want to go back and listen to that one. Like you were saying, Tim, that one's great. I can't believe nobody mentioned top 10 board games that should be made into movies. Ah, I, think that, <laughs> I think that was one of my favorite episodes. It was just a little wacky and offbeat and uh, had to be a little bit creative and come up with some stuff for that one. I had a lot of fun digging deep on that one and coming up with some board games to be made into movies. I thought that was a good one. Hegemony, I liked that one. Chris, you commented the sound quality was nice on that one. I thought uh, I, I edited that one and I thought it did just sound great. We're all sounding very crisp and clear on our mics and then the discussion i thought was fantastic i thought the game was fun itself just an interesting game and all-encompassing so it was fun to talk about that and and get our thoughts uh recorded so those are some of my favorite. and then having our spouses on that one was fantastic too they got a chance to see what it was like and they got to feel the heat get a little bit nervous trying to come up with stuff to talk about on a microphone so i thought that was great and then any episode with board game chatterbox on it um, I could listen to her talk about the worst game, which she practically did talk about the worst game, but I loved, <laughs> I loved hearing every second of it. Uh, so if we get her back on, that would be fantastic. Or some of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Nice. So good picks. I was going to say the, the one with our partners on, it was so much fun for me. I had a great time hanging out with them and it was fun for them to get to see behind the scenes a little bit and get a little bit nervous and, and, you know, you could see them sweating. It was just cool for them to get a, a little taste, taste of the experience. And this the only one we've done where we're all sitting around the table looking yeah. at each other with a microphone there. So that was kind of a different whole scenario as well. Yeah, that was awesome. It, unfortunately, the sound didn't turn out too well because we didn't really test it before. Yeah. And so we were in a, a little bit too big of a space. And I, I think it was even my fault. Like I should have been leaning up towards the mic a little more. It would have sounded better. But poor sound notwithstanding, I thought that was a really fun episode and had a great time recording it. The other one I was going to mention, and it's kind of it's been a series, I guess. We're going we're gonna to be doing it again next week. And that's our top five 
crowdfunded games that we're excited to receive. And that was actually the first special episode we ever did, which it was like yep. episode six. We decided to try a special episode and had a great time with that conversation. We've redone that every year. I'm really excited for next week's episode to record that one again. Well, those are all great choices. I feel like you guys stole a bunch of my thunders. So, but, but I'll give my answers anyway. Yeah, on the, the spouses one, we'll have to do another one of those because I think my wife is jealous that she didn't get to join in and, uh, and join the party on that one. So we'll have to do another one of those someday in the, in the future. You know, all of these episodes are so much fun. And one of the things that I think is great about doing this is that for every one of these, I can remember something about what was happening in my life when we made that episode. And in particular, for the first, I don't know, eight months or so that we were doing the podcast almost, I was traveling around the country. We were on a road trip uh, going from California to the East Coast and then back to Oregon when we moved. And so for a lot of those episodes back in the early days, I can remember which state I was in. I can remember what national park we were visiting. So a lot of great memories there. So which one was my actual favorite? I think I have two answers to this one. I know that's a cheat, but Adam gave like seven of them. So it's only a minor cheat. One of them was from May of this year, and that was the top five IPs that we want in board games. That was actually a lot of fun. Got a great recommendation on a, a book from Tim, Perdido Street Station, which I read right after we did that episode, and it was a great book. And there were just so many neat little uh, trips down memory lane. Like I forget who mentioned it, but it was Dragon Riders of Pern, which brought me right back to the 1980s and that great video game. The other episode that's one of my favorites is not the first crowdfunding episode we ever did, but the second crowdfunding episode that we ever did, because the first one I thought was great, but the second one, we really got to hear a lot about Tim's philosophy on, <laughs> on Kickstarters and, and whatnot, and oh boy, it's it's a hoot. So go back and listen. Uh, you'll You'll be surprised that he ended up I think kickstarting more games than either of us did <laughs> over the right. course of the next two years after all the trash talking he did about that. But nevertheless, lots of good stuff to listen to there. And it gave us a chance to reflect on some of the very, very out of date Kickstarters and other crowdfunding games that we had that eventually made it. Hopefully some of them did, some of them didn't, but lots of fun. So another great, another great episode. Yeah, great picks, Chris. All right. Well, let's uh, get into why everyone's actually here. Let's talk about some board games. And we're going to start with a description of Spirit Island. Colonizers have come to yet another harmonious island to disrupt the indigenous way of life and unwittingly bring blight to the land. But this time, the spirits of the land itself, aided by the indigenous Dahani, will fight back. Players take the role of one of over 30 possible spirits in an attempt to push back against the onslaught of invaders. Spirits like Vital Strength of the Earth, a spread of rampant green, and Ocean's Hungry Grasp will work together to remove the colonizing force of explorers, towns, and cities through the use of innate minor or major powers, which I'll talk about more in a second. Each spirit board, or player board, contains a wealth of information, including two tracks, which in general provide an increasing amount of power cards they can play and an increasing amount of energy which is used to pay for the power cards. The game progresses over a series of rounds, and the rounds progress in a series of phases. In the base game, by the way, there are many expansions. The phases are as follows. First, each spirit grows. So a spirit like Lightning Swift Strike will get to choose one of three options. Something like regain used powers and add a power and gain an energy, or massively increase their presence on the island, 
or gain in energy and only slightly increase their presence. Next, each spirit chooses which powers to play, and this is where a hefty chunk of the choices in the game are made. The powers are represented as cards, which do things like cause damage to invaders, defend certain lands, or boost other spirits. Players must choose carefully as each power comes with a cost and includes certain elements. Things like air, sun, moon, fire, water. These elements can combine to trigger innate powers or boost minor or major powers, so you can see there is a hefty amount of puzzle solving occurring in this phase. Not to mention countering the invader phase, which is next. Here in the invader phase, invaders ravage the land, potentially causing blight and harming spirit presence on the board. Then they build where they can, and finally, they explore. After that, spirits activate their slow powers. Did I mention spirits have slow and fast powers? Finally, a cleanup phase occurs, and the next round begins. As the spirits induce more fear amongst the invaders, the win condition becomes easier to meet, but if the colonizers cause too much blight, or if any single spirit is eradicated, the spirits lose. Work together to eradicate invaders, or induce enough fear, and the spirits claim victory. Spirit Island was designed by Eric Royce, published by Greater Than Games, and uses a team of outstanding artists which provide incredible theme and functionality. It was released in 2017 and is currently ranked 11th overall on BoardGameGeek. All right, welcome back. So let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms of Spirit Island just to give a little context for how much we played this. I think this was Chris's first play tonight. We played a four-player game. I've played a couple solo games of it in the past, two-handed solo games, and this was my first multiplayer game of it. Adam, you played it quite a bit, right? Yeah, this used to be, this is one of my earliest games that I owned. I think somewhere at the end of their first print run, this game was getting pretty big back in, I don't know when this was published. I probably just said in the rules description, yeah, 2017. <laughs> <laughs> this game was getting hot. I wanted something to do. I had a little bit more time on my hands. only had one kid. So I went and tracked this one down at a local game store and bought it and learned the rules and dove in. I usually would play it solo, and I would play it with two spirits. So I got pretty familiar with it, and I would kind of track my plays. Oh, I was Ocean's Hungry Grasp in the grassy grassy forest that's gonna grow weeds over everything and i tracked my you know how did i do and how did i win and i was pretty into it for a while i got a little insert to hold all the pieces and this and that yeah i went a little crazy with spirit island there for a period all right well with with so many plays behind you adam what uh what mechanisms are standing out to you well, great question, Tim. So a few things stand out. The card play is fantastic. The way the little discs slide off and that becomes your presence you put down the board, that's pretty neat. But what stands out to me the most, that's most fun for me, is the the synergies between the spirits. And we had a couple great examples of that going on tonight. I had a power that would let another spirit gain an element. There's these elements you need that can trigger different powers that each of these spirits have. I had a power that could allow a different spirit to gain an element, and that would give potentially them the ability to trigger one of their powers. So tonight's case, just as one example, I let Chris or Tim gain an extra element, which let them give one of us the ability to play a, a slow power into a fast power. Or I think I gave Chris that ability, and then Chris had the ability to let Tim use his card twice and Tim had the card that let somebody use their flow powers fast so we got to do that twice so just wacky stuff like that that comes out of this game 
the synergies between the different spirits, I think is one of the best things about this game. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I love the, uh, you mentioned about the elements. And I think that's a really fun side effect of like when you're playing your first couple turns in the game, you don't ever have enough elements to do anything. But every player has these passive powers on their player mat that as they get certain combinations of elements, they can get extra actions. And also some of the cards trigger off them. I, that's a cool puzzle. It was fun. It was a fun, you know, to start to pay attention to what, when you add cards to your deck. Oh, does it have the elements that are going to benefit my character that's going to, you know, synergize? And so it was just one more piece to the element and fun when you could trigger them off. My favorite part of it, though, I think had to do with this growth phase. So basically at the beginning of every, every round, everybody gets one of three benefits. I, I think they're a little asymmetric, but on mine, I could uh, essentially, this is where I could take all the cards back out of my discard pile and put them in my hand, or I could just gain another card. And when you gain a card, you just, there's two, there's uh, major powers and minor powers, and you can basically just look at the top four cards of either deck and just add one of them to your hand. But if you get a major power, you have to discard another card. So, um, and then, the, and then you'd also get like a bonus energy. So that was one of the options. The other option is you could put two discs out on the board in certain locations, uh, which is essentially upgrading your player mat. It's making it so that you can play more cards on future turns and get more energy income. And then the third one basically just gave me a big bump in energy for that turn and let me put one disc on the board. But bottom line is like every turn without doing anything, you're getting, you're, you're, you're basically your engine's building. You're, you're going to get more powerful. And I love when games do that. Like don't make it where I have to work to just feel like there's an advancement. And this game does a really good job of, of giving you that advancement opportunity. Yeah, the growth phase. I feel like that was actually fairly asymmetric and it led towards certain strategies. Like my guy, I played the rock guy, the earth guy. And it definitely, gave, I had the impression that my growth phase kind of encouraged building strength but building it in a smaller area. There was not a lot of mobility. I couldn't jump out a couple spaces and put a bunch of discs down, but I could stay within a relatively small area, but then build up more of those presence discs, which was also beneficial and helpful for my strategy. The fact that that same character also provides an automatic three defense every time that they have what they call like a spiritual location. And when you have two discs there. I thought that was kind of cool. Like I definitely felt like I was playing a slightly different variation of the game than you guys were in, in a minor way. It was not a huge variation, but definitely the characters lent to a different strategy. You'd mentioned the elements. I wish I had paid more attention to that because I feel like that's something you could really parlay into some powerful actions. But for me, I probably chose my cards not terribly wisely. And at most, I ever triggered the first level of my innate abilities. I think for me, at least, there was three levels of innate ability. I think you guys had something similar where you could, if you had one of these three different tokens, these three different elements, then it did this one thing. And then if you had two of them, it did this other thing. And so it got more and more powerful. I hardly took advantage of that other than that first level, which let me replicate or let somebody else replicate a power of a value of one or less, one or zero. But it went all the way up to six if I've been able to trigger that power more strongly. But the thing that really I thought made the game both challenging and interesting was the importance of sequencing. And what I'm talking about there is what I'm talking about there is the slow actions versus the fast actions. And the way that this phase of the game works where you start getting into the combats and, and the fighting 
is that if you have fast actions, you can take those right away. And that's where you can swoop in and like maybe knock out some cities, knock out some towns, knock out some of the uh, some of the enemies that are going to be attacking you back. So if you can take them out first, then that can be a huge benefit. Then they get a chance to fight. And then after all of that happens, then you come back and do the slow abilities. And man, what a difference that made. I mean, there was a couple times when I played cards where I'm like, I'm just I'm just going to drop a bomb on these fools only to realize, oh, wait, I actually just played a slow ability and the slow ability isn't going to trigger until they've actually already swept me off into the ocean. So thank goodness that you guys had these cards where we could play some of the slow actions fast because the number of times that actually saved my butt, it was huge. But just having to think through that, it, it was frustrating sometimes, I'll admit, but it really did make you think about the actions you were playing and the sequence. And somebody had mentioned during the course of the game, Tim, I think it was you about, it was almost like programming. And that's, that's a little bit of what it felt like. Yeah. I think that we were talking about that during the game. That's right. It is like programming. So, you know, you're getting these cards out and you're like, okay, this is going to happen first. I know these next few things are going to happen in the middle. And then this is going to happen at the end. In the meantime, these guys, you know, it's programming within programming, like all these different for loops, right? So you got your fast powers, and then the invaders act and they're going to do this ravage and then a build and then an explore. So, and then we get to do attacks some more. So you can plan this all out if you want to. So it's a very sort of methodical think ahead. If you want to play it like that, you're like, okay, these guys are going to come out here. These guys are going to come out. Or you could just, you know, throw caution in the wind and just put some cards out. I'm going to do this. I don't care what happens and what, see if it hopefully it works out after the fact. But, you know, I you know one thing I've never done is play this at four player like we did tonight. I think I've done it at two a couple times and I've tried it at three and that didn't go so well. But at four, it was different. You almost have to just kind of put them out there and not really pre-plan to a T everything. Or otherwise, you're just going to be sit there and pre-planning forever. So it was it was kind of neat tonight to know that that programming existed and these phases are going to execute in a certain way. But then just be like, you know what? I'm just going to go with these cards, because they sound cool, we'll see what happens after the fact. And we did have a little bit of that tuning afterwards, like, oh, maybe I'll put this here and concentrate on this territory because it looks like Steve can handle this. I'll focus over here. So there was a little bit of that coordination and discussion, which I I thought that was kind of neat, working out, working that out together and, you know, destroying all these invaders. One person's neat is another person's misery. Uh, you know, I don't like cooperative games. You guys know this. Um, but I do think that Spirit Island is a wonderful cooperative game because the the spirits are so asymmetric and the cards that you're playing are so asymmetric and there is a lot of synergy from it. And so if you want to sit down and puzzle out something with other people, I think this is a great game to do it with. I think it 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 was a fun experience. And sometimes it was so fun when we would oh, I want to do this thing. And this will also like, I've got this card. This will give you an element you need. Oh, wow. We just put this whole thing together. So it was great when you would trigger that. Um, but I just, you know, it's just not my my type of game. And we were talking a little bit about it. Like it's almost too much that you have to work out with your with the other players. Like it's all public information. So everyone's cards are visible. So if you really wanted to, you guys could all like together. Okay, here's all the five cards I have available in my hand this turn and five cards. Oh, let's try to put the best combination together. And you could spend half an hour in between each turn if you wanted to do that. And I think this game would benefit from something like what Frosthaven or Gloomhaven does, where everyone just reveals the cards they're going to play 
with no other information. And then after you reveal them, okay, now we tactically have to figure out how we're going to work these together. Like take some of the cooperative steps away there to make it a little bit more like everyone's actually doing something with agency on their own. But again, that's me. If you listen to the show, you know that I'm not a big fan of cooperative games. I think as a group, we're not generally, but I thought this was still a really fun experience. And I think as far as a cooperative game goes, it it had a lot of interesting choices and, and, you know, interactions that, that was pretty neat. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I think the way we played it probably was pretty close to what you described, Tim. I mean, we didn't do a lot of, we, we kind of did throw our cards down and then decided yeah. what we're going to do for the most part. And occasionally someone would say, well, I'm thinking of doing this. And someone would say, wait, hold on. I, yeah. I got something that might help you. And I, I thought that worked pretty well. Uh, full disclosure to anybody who has never listened to the show before that, I'm not a big fan of cooperative games either, so I'm kind of in that same in that same boat. Appreciated the uh, the way that that worked, though, and I think that you actually would improve the game by doing something like what Tim said and being and maybe enforcing that even a little more strictly than we did. We kind of did it naturally that we just kind of went through the process of throwing down the cards and then seeing how that would work out. But if you actually did enforce that a little bit, I think that would make it even. It would make it even better. Certainly make it go quicker because this game did go relatively long. I don't know how long a game of this normally would take. And I guess it would depend dramatically on how much coordination the group that's playing decided to do. But I think we put in about, what, three hours? Does that sound about right? About seven to ten, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it did go long at four did And in, I think this game is a much more methodical kind of mellow out figure out how it's going to go and work things out. A lot of that length, I think, too, comes from the administrative side of this game where you're pulling out a city over here. Okay, is it going to explore? Is it going to build here? Are we going to, oh, yep, this one gets a build here. And okay, now it's time to explore. Guy goes here, guy goes here, guy goes here. And by the end of it, we were getting the flow a little bit, but there's that whole process of taking these guys out grabbing it out of this bin, put it over here. These invaders, they always get stuck together where there's little hooky flags. You try to grab one, you get a chain of like five of them. They're flying everywhere. You're trying to set them with these little dinky light plastic things. I got big old fat fingertips that I'm like trying to set this guy up. It's a tiny little square. It's hard to put them out there <laughs> just right. And they're going to knock them over five or six times before you're settling them in there. At least you know, I'm clumsy and inept. So it's hard for me to do that kind of thing. But yes, this game does go long without that super fun punch of enjoyment so i don't know if, i think that's a mechanism it's kind of the administrivia game bureaucrats the game yeah <laughs> that's funny you mentioned that adam because that was that is the one of the part of the game that is you know even when i played it solo it was like the part of the game that made me not want to be playing it which was that okay uh-huh. now it's time to the build action the explore and okay i gotta remember what are all the space i gotta put them on wait did i put one there already nope i gotta okay you know so it's just like it's work to do that and it's a lot of it's a lot like when we played a four player you're putting so many pieces out there on the board um you know so yeah that that's that's uh unfortunate part but i will say that Everything else about the way that you interact with the invaders, with the colonizers in this, I think is pretty interesting. I, I really like the fear deck where as you're removing this fear, you're going to get some extra bonuses that you're 
that you get to do the beginning of the whatever the the attack face or whatever and that was really fun it was fun to see what those cards were and can we oh can we get just a couple more fears so we get one more card turned over there so cool interactions there interesting interactions with the way that the card row as they build and attack and, and all of that stuff you kind of can see how it's coming you know first they're exploring and then they're going to build on the the space they explored last time and then they're going to attack on the space that they built last time and so it's this progression and you have a little bit of pre-information to plan around um so that's cool uh you know the even the taking the blade off the board and how eventually once you took enough blade off then the island became blighted and so there was a negative that we had to deal with from that as well and that's variable so i thought you know just everything that's happening on that enemy board i don't remember what it's called you know that sideboard a lot of cool things going on here that that led to fun things that uncovered and discovered even if you Mm -hmm. then had to administrate all of the, the the work yeah, I like both of those pieces, and maybe this is straying too much at this point into theme, but I really like the way those mechanisms integrated with the theme of the game. The fear, the whole idea of the fear is that you're making these people who've invaded the island feel nervous about being there, you know, kind of driving them away and concerned about, you know, what what's happening around me? What are these bad dreams I'm having? What are these, why are my crops dying? You know, all that kind of stuff. And the worse it gets, the easier it is to drive them away. I thought that was kind of cool, both from a thematic standpoint, as well as the mechanism of creating those opportunities for, you know, different uh, endgame conditions, but also the blight as well. I thought that was another great thematic touch that also created an interesting mechanism. The only complaint I had about the blight was that, man, when you got to that second half of the blight set or whatever, you, you went through the full round of blight and then you flip this card over and you went from the healthy island to the unhealthy island it was freaking brutal like all of a sudden every round you have to either get rid of one of your presence tokens which is huge i mean that's like your area control in a sense or you had to get rid of one of your powers at the end of the game i think i had something like five powers total and if i'm going to get rid of one of those every turn i mean that's like a that's like a death sentence. So I wish that had been slightly less of a killer. Then again, we did win the game. So I guess it wasn't that much of a killer. And maybe we should have planned better. Maybe I should have planned better. But man, that just felt like a slap in the face when we got to that point. That Bladed Island card was what they called a module. And so you you could just play Mm. without it where it's just there's a little bit more blight there to start with. And once it's all gone, then you just die so if you really didn't like oh, that gotcha. piece of it you you could just get get rid of it cool i thought that was yeah i like that blighted island card and the way the blight works the way that uh, you know as your spirits are getting stronger the island is becoming more blighted so there's this whole build up this whole arc of the game where you know it becomes a battle with stronger cards versus unhealthier island i thought that was kind of a neat balance and the more that uh, you know the more that i've been away from the game the more i've come to appreciate that whole balance between the blight and the invader buildup and the card powers. It's, it's pretty well done how those all come together and sort of climax at the right time together, which is always a great thing. Yeah. Let's uh, jump into the theme and production of Spirit Island. I'm just going to start with the artwork. I think the way that these spirits are represented on their cards, the artwork is fun. They're you know, it's somewhat colorful, even if it's a little bit maybe dark at times, but it's one of these games where they just did a great job. The names of the spirits, right, are like, you know, these, the lightning that streaks the houses. I don't know what the names are. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> the lightning that streaks the houses. Yes. <laughs> Excellent spirit. But, you know, great spirit names and just evocative. And then they go with the artwork really well. And each of the each of the uh, spirits has their starting hand of four cards, which each have unique artwork that represents that spirit. But then there's this huge deck of spirit cards that all have different artwork on it. I think the artwork is a superstar part of the production in this game. Yeah, I'm going to second that. I thought the art was terrific. And not only just the card art, which I agree with you completely, Tim, but even the board. The board had these stylized, not even symbol, not symbology, not even, I mean, it was, it was barely, it was patterns. But if you had a jungle, it was like this little leaf pattern. And the mountains were this almost like stony pattern. And it was really beautiful. I mean, it was really simple, but it was really pretty. And I I really enjoyed looking at that. It, it's a very elegant game. You know, there's some games that are elegant and simple, and that is a real strength in the art. Uh, Dune Imperium is another example of that, a very streamlined board without a lot of art on it. But what's there is great and really creates a, a nice atmosphere. I thought that Spirit Island was the same way. And then there's the components. The components seemed relatively simple, but I thought were were effective. I mean, the little mushroom-looking huts, those are kind of neat. Um, you don't need much more than the discs to show presence. I mean, I suppose you could have put some big you know, production together with minis or something like that. But this is a game that doesn't feel like it's intended to have that kind of a, a vibe to it. One thing I don't know, Adam... The houses themselves, are those wooden? Are they plastic? Are they, what are they made out of? Uh, so yeah, that's a big part of this game too. The invaders are all plastic and they're supposed to be brash and abrasive. Everything that's like peaceful and nice is made out of wood. So mm. you have the spirit discs. Those are made out of the wood. The Dahan, the huts, those are made out of wood. The, the board is nice cardboard. So that's wood in a sense. And then you have these white, abrasive, harsh, plastic, bad for the earth invaders that are just infecting all of this nice stuff. So that was intentionally done as a, uh, a contrast to the passive peacefulness of the, the island. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's going moving beyond the production into theme a little bit. I think Spirit Island does a great job of telling a story and, and theme, right? I mean, it's, it's, the reverse colonization game. It's it's about like, you know, colonizers are coming in here and we got to push them away from the island. And you just, you're doing it. You're feeling it every time the artwork evokes it, the names of the cards you're playing evoke it, the fear cards that come up, you know, it, it just tells a really good story. So I think thematically Spirit Island, um, it, you know, it had a mission and it succeeded really well with it. I want to jump in some more. I think that I want to second what you guys are saying. The production and theme here, I think, are pretty fantastic. Thematically, the cards are great. The production-wise, I think the cards are great. They have the the elements on the left-hand side of each of these cards with a little picture on the top part of the card, a little description of what the card does. So you can kind of line these things up so that just the left sides are visible if you want to. That is one of the hard things about the game is tracking all of these icons as well. I think we touched on it in mechanisms, but you know, you have all these different icons or is it going to trigger these powers? You got to count them up. You're looking up here. You're looking down at your board. Did I activate these powers down here? Oh, did I get an extra element from Tim or Chris? Now, how many elements do I have? So there are a few apps to help out with this. We did it on the tabletop simulator tonight that tracks it all for you. We put in a special bonus area. All these cards are, they have a little programming in them to let you know how many of each icons you have. So again, part of that 
administration aspect of the game. It's a plus and a minus. It's really neat how it does it and because all these things activate, but it's a pain in the butt to to track it all. Going back to the theme, I second what Tim said. I think that what they did here with the theme was great. I love the story that's being told. And I think that one of the things that's really important about the theme here is that it is such a necessary corrective to so much of what happens in board game world where, you know, Settlers of Catan, any of these games where you're, you're conquering, taking control, uh, expeditions, area control, all of that stuff. That is such a prevalent theme throughout games that to actually have one that takes the flip side of that it seems like such an obvious choice and yet it's it's done so rarely. And so I loved seeing it done here and done with a nice production and done the way that it was with the, uh, the thematic elements built in so nicely into the mechanisms that I, I tip my hat to the designers in this game for just doing an excellent job with that. Yeah, I second everything you just said, Chris. All right, well, let's jump into our final question. That is, would you request to play Spirit Island again? This is a tricky one, right? When am I going to have the time and the will to want to set up this whole game, play a couple spirits, and manipulate these little pieces that are kind of tricky and fidgety and slide these things around? I had a great time playing this game, and I think the design is outstanding. And I loved playing it. I honestly do not know when I'm going to get all this stuff out of the box and set it all up and have it going. So it's sitting here on my shelf or it's been sitting for about two years and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Am I going to sell it? A lot of people want to buy this thing. I love hearing about this game and how everything played out, but it always kind of plays out the same way. Oh, we're going to get blighted. Everything's building up so big weight. I now it turned a corner and, oh, we just have to destroy these four cities. Oh, we did that. That's easy. And then now the game's over. Okay, well. That was fun. All right. Uh, three hours later, you know? So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's just sitting there. I don't know what to do with it. What am I going to do with this? What would you do with it, Tim? Well, I wouldn't request to play it again. Um, so here's the deal. I, I think, I, like you said, it's a genius design. It's wonderful. I had a fun time playing it. I just, I'm not going to ask to play a cooperative game straight up. It's not the game's fault. It's just, I don't like people apparently. So um, you know, I, I won't be requesting, but if somebody wanted to play it, I, I, this is one of my favorite cooperative games that I've played. I think everything about it works really well. I did have this for a little while. And like I said, I played some solo games of it and it seems like it should be a great solo game, but it, it's the administration and it's the weight to play two spirits, which I think you want to be doing even solo because it gives you those interactions and it's just a lot to track and it's a lot to manipulate. And I played through a couple of games of it and I was just tired by the end. Like it was doing cool stuff. And I was like, man, this is, this is a really neat game, but I'm just tired of tracking all this stuff and yeah. following through the process. So it's not a solo game for me. I know a lot of people love it, but I, you know, it's just heavier than I want to play solo and I'm just not going to request to add, to play a multiplayer game. But again, great game. I, I had fun with it, and I'd be happy to go back and play it again if someone really wanted to. I'm so glad you guys were tracking the admin pieces on this game, because honestly, when it got to those parts, I just sort of tuned out, because I'm like, yeah, they got it. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> but the answer for me is no. I would not ask to play this one again, partially because I just don't really like cooperative games that much. And when I do play a cooperative game, I basically want someone to be telling me a bedtime story. I want to be watching an action movie. I want a nemesis or a Cthulhu Death May Die with not a ton of thinking, a little bit of strategy, but you're basically being told a story. And there was a story here for sure. Like I said, I, I really respect what the designers were doing. 
but this was a l- way too puzzly for me for a so for a solo game or a cooperative game. I want something that's a little bit more slam bang, a little bit more action. Uh, this game had some really cool theme, really cool mechanisms that integrated well with the game, but with the the theme. But it just didn't it didn't wow me. It didn't keep me engaged the way that uh, some other games, some more you know story more story driven games tend to do. When I was playing this, I found myself constantly feeling like I was playing Pandemic, partially because of the cooperative nature, of course, but also because you're sort of doing that same fighting the spreading disease. You know, here the spreading disease is the the conquistadors or the the invaders in Pandemic. It's a disease, but it it seemed to me a very similar concept. So putting myself in the shoes for a moment or trying to put myself in the shoes of a person who likes playing cooperative games and just having that as a point of comparison, I found this to be a much more interesting game than Pandemic, partially because it created more, it was, the theme was just more interesting. The theme was better, more interesting, more of an interesting story going on there. The mechanisms created, it was a little bit more complex, a little bit more room for interesting decision-making. So if you did want to play a cooperative game or a solo game, I think this is a better choice than pandemic, I would definitely choose this one over that one. But ultimately, like Tim, I'm not going to be asking for a co-op game. And if I am asking for a co-op game, it's probably not going to be you know, a puzzly kind of game like this with that much need for cooperate, <laughs> cooperation, I guess, in coordination. It's going to be something a little bit more streamlined. But I, I do really respect what the designers are doing here. And I think that this game definitely has uh, an audience and a lot of people are going to love it. I think you're bringing up some great points, Chris. For me, I'd rather almost rather play this over something like Cthulhu Death May Die or maybe over something like Nemesis. I don't know how to fun time playing Nemesis. I feel like in those cooperative games, there's almost too few actual crunchy decisions to be made. You're just kind of going through the motions and all right, here's a card and I'm going to get this gun. I'm going to walk over to this room and oh, this wacky thing happened and now I'm going to try to escape and roll this dice and beat the alien and load these cows up with some dynamite and send them up to the alien ship. So yeah, you get the narrative and the story, but you're not really, you know, you're just making the obvious things. I'm going to run over here and help Steve and try to blow up this guy. So if I'm going to do a cooperative game, which I don't know when I ever would, I think I would much prefer Spirit Island over something like Cthulhu Death May Die for sure. And then maybe Nemesis. I don't have to go back to Nemesis a few times to see what kind of choices are there. But as far as the choices being made, I really, really enjoy the ones here in Spirit Island. So if there's some balance between interesting decisions being made and not the administration of Spirit Island, I think that would be my ideal choice. Uh, just to be clear, you guys, Nemesis is not a cooperative game. Yeah, semi-co-op. But what I, I think is interesting <laughs> about this is that all three of us saw a lot to like in this game, even if it wasn't to our taste. Yeah. 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 I mean, to be honest, like the mechanisms of my hand management and the growth action and like that, the engine building that happens here, if that that exact same mechanism was turned into a competitive game. I don't care what you're doing, but in some way I could use that exact same player mat and the, the unique player part, like wonderful. Like I, if I was just playing this game myself against other opponents, I would have had a wonderful time with it. Obviously that's not what the game is, but the point is that I think there's some really great mechanisms here. And honestly, the game is much more streamlined than you would expect it to be. The rule book's fairly short. 
it's easy to track the round of the face. So there's administration, but it's like all straightforward steps. And once we got through a round, it was just like, okay, this is really easy to run through. And so it, there's a lot going for the game for sure. Just uh, maybe cooperative is not for us. That's why we don't talk about them a, a lot. Listeners have been asking us to talk about this game for years. This is what you get when you ask us to talk about a cooperative <laughs> game. But yeah, again, yeah. great game. Just not not for us since we're not into co-op. All right. Well, let's move into some games that we've had on our table right after this. Welcome back. So this week, I got a chance to go to a little local gaming convention called Maricopa Con here in in Arizona, and uh, got a chance to play some great games. One of them being Lacrimosa, which we mentioned earlier in the episode, which I absolutely loved. It was even a better experience than I remembered. Wonderful, wonderful game. But the the game I'm going to talk about is an older game. It's called Lancaster. Uh, this game is one of the ugliest games you'll ever see. It is not a pretty site. It looks like some bad uh, computer-generated artwork on the board, which is a map of ancient England, and there's little duchies around this map with their names on them. Uh, it's just not, you know, like it's it's an old-school queen production. So it's not that bad, but it definitely, it was set on the table, and I was like, wow, that is not a looker. It's not a, not a good-looking game. Move past the look of this game, and the game is so much fun. You guys, I think, would really love it. It is a very, very interactive Euro-style game. Um, I'll go really briefly through. Basically, what it is is that you've got different types of knights, and they're either one, two, three, or four. And the knights are represented by these wooden pieces, and the higher number they are, the thicker they are, which is not super important to the game, but it does add a fun little uh, tactile element to it. Uh, but your knights are essentially workers that you're going to be placing out on the board. So think of it like a worker placement game. But it's got a couple of cool things with the worker placement. One is that it's it's got the uh, kind of Pan Am bidding style. So I can put a size one knight out there. You would have to put a size two knight out if you want to knock me out of that space. But then I can use my one in another space. There's also this little um, extra resource squires. There are these little white meeples. If you collect those, you can add them to your number and that basically builds the you know the the amount you're bidding with but if you get knocked out even with squires you lose the squires so there's a little bit more risk than in pan am where if you don't bid high enough and block someone out you could lose the space and may not get all the power you had before um but these spaces are going to give you some uh you know some benefits that will either like let you upgrade your knights or add more knights from your from the general supply or whatever the other thing you can do with your knights though during this worker placement phase is that there are some battles that are happening. You know, England's at war with France and you can send your knights out to um, to basically get into these battles. And this is an interesting thing too, because the battles basically, there's a certain power you have to, to have at this in this battle and up to three players can send knights out there. But um, the it, it's like a, a majority. So whoever has the most power at the end of the round is going to get the biggest po- point bonus and so on. And if you don't defeat this ship, then you could even lose your knights. Um, so, you know, fun, again, interactive mechanism here. This is all cool, but there's a phase of this game that was so much fun. And this is the, there's a voting phase, just like hegemony. It's, it felt almost exactly the same way. Um, but what, what would happen after you do your worker placement is you're going to vote on the laws that are going to come into play 
this this round. And so at the start of the game, there's three laws that are up there, and they could be different things like you're going to score extra points for having size two knights, or you're going to um, you know you're going to uh, be able to upgrade a knight if you have three squires. So you know laws that each player may or may not benefit from. At the end of each worker placement phase, and this game plays over five rounds, three new laws are going to be up to vote on. And the way voting works, everyone's got a uh, you know a yes and a no vote. And then they can also commit influence cubes that you could collect over the course of the game against each of these votes. So there's going to be three votes that happen. If the law comes into place, it kicks out one of the laws that were up there before. So sometimes you may not even care about the law. You just want to make sure that the law that's really benefiting one of your opponents gets knocked off. Uh, this was really fun too. Interactive, table talk, people getting excited about you know what was showing up there, how much intrigue was or influence was added to a vote. Um, so just a bunch of little little elements in this game. It's played very quickly, very easy to teach, and super fun interaction in it. Um, so yeah, this is Lancaster. And again, I, I hadn't even heard of this game before. It was uh, made in 2011, and this is a Matthias Kramer game. Um, you know, fantastic game from that era. Fantastic Euro and tons of interaction so this is like the antithesis to you know playing something like exploration or uh, expeditions where where you're you know you're really just playing your game that's not this at all this was a mean cutthroat game with serious fun going on you know tim it's so funny because um i just happened to have written my local representative the other day and said we need to be getting a point for a size two nights <laughs> so we, we ought to have a law uh, no, seriously, how, how did you end up um, with this particular game? I know you were at that con. Was this one that you gravitated toward or did nah. someone suggest it to you? Or No, it was funny. How did you end up with this one? Yeah, we were we, we, we had just played um, Lacrimosa. It was, it was three of us and then two more guys show up. So we were going to set up Endless Winter next, but that only plays up to four. And one of my friends brought it and he was like, well, I'll set this one up. It's on the table. And I was like, oh, God, do I really have to sit down and learn this ugly old euro? But as soon as he started teaching, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in love. It must be personality because it's not looks here. But but, no, you know, <laughs> it, it's just one of these games that like you just can read the mechanisms and you're going to be like, oh, wow, there, there's so much cool stuff going on that. And, and it was it was just a blast. Every round was fun. I want to try this one, Tim, after hearing you talk about it and looking at it, it looks cool and it sounds pretty darn fun. Yeah, they said it's uh, it's out of print at this point, but um. He's like, yeah, but you know, it's an it's an old Queen production. There, there's always extra stock everywhere. You could probably pick it up used for twenty bucks somewhere. So I'll probably be keeping an eye on it, e- even if just to get played at a con with you guys, because I think you would, I think you'd like it. Cool. Awaken Realms will do the deluxe version of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Foot foot tall castles and knights or whatever. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, what's been on my table is another game like so many recently that I've been talking about where I didn't actually play the game, but I did start unpacking and punching a game. And this week it was Lords of Ragnarok, which I got a little while back. Super exciting. I'm hoping that I'm going to get this one out for Portland Con and that we'll get a chance to play it. But it is um, it is Awakened Realms and it is an epic production, as was its spiritual predecessor, Lords of Hellas which was a neat game, but I wanted to step it up a notch and get myself a copy of Lords of Ragnarok, partially because I wanted something a little bit more refined than Lords of Hellas, but also because I just find the theme of the Norse gods rather than the Greek gods, just a more entertaining, an entertaining theme. So I thought that was cool. And this one gave me the opportunity to get on the ground floor and get the full tricked out version from the uh, the crowdfunding 
campaign rather than by the standard version. And, and I will say that one of my most frustrating packing jobs ever is trying to pack up Lords of Hellas because it is a horrible storage solution and there's no way to pack that game without lid lift. And there's all these like really intricate minis that I always like I'm breaking arms off of Thor and stuff like that. So this one has a m- much nicer storage uh, set storage solution. So I haven't actually played it yet, but I can vouch that this is a incredibly pretty game. And maybe I'll get a chance to talk about it more after we play it in Portland and hopefully have nice things to say about it. Yeah, right on. I'm looking forward to this. We played Lords of Hellas years ago, just a two player. And Mm -hmm. and I remember it having some really fun things going on, but we never got it back to the table. So fun to try its successor uh, with the with the group of four could be a really fun, fun time or it could be terrible. We'll report back. Yeah. Who knows? I'm looking forward to this one. I've heard mixed things, some negative, but then some very positive. I've heard it's like a mini Awakened Realms games where, you know, there's a lot of crap going on. But once you can sort your way through that, the game is actually pretty neat. So I'm looking forward to this one. Chris, I hope you're going to be ready to teach it. I hope so, too. Awaken Realm is such a weird crapshoot <laughs> because you've got Nemesis where, holy cow, once you get the basics down, you're just cruising. You're having a good time. And then you've got Great Wall where, dude, you can have like the summary of the rules, the neat little spreadsheet that somebody made and still get through that and have played an entire game of it and being, I have no idea what I just did. So it's like a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just don't leave that box of chocolates out in the sun. It's a lot of chocolate to melt. All right, well, that will wrap up this episode of Board Game Hot Takes. Before we go, though, I did want to call out, we had such a wonderful week with reviews. We had seven people leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts this wow. week. I'm not going to read them all today, but I want to give a shout out to everybody that has done over the next few weeks. So I'll just read two today. And then if you left us a review, you, you'll get called out over the next few weeks as we're getting through these. The first uh, review was top four board game podcast five stars this podcast is so good i love the personalities this show rates right up near the top with the secret cabal so very wrong about games and no pun included welcome to the big show hot takes thank you so much this was from media teacher mike it's humbling to be called out with giants in board game podcasts podcasts that a lot of people know that i've been listening to for years in some cases so very cool the next one was titled Board Games, Friends, and Hot Takes, Oh My, five stars. Simply the best board game podcast out there. Sure, it helps that I've gotten to know Tim over the past year and a half, but that makes the show extra special. Their commitment to community engagement is top-notch. I'm especially here for witty banter between friends, which is the highlight of the show. Congrats on three years of weekly content, a very impressive feat. Even though I know Tim the best, give yourselves all one point for being my favorites. <laughs> the handle here was DJ Steel Dragon, and I don't have any idea who that was. But this this review was in Canada, and the person I've gotten to know the most in Canada the last couple of years was Ryan Rouse uh, from Mr. Rouse Gaming. Great streaming channel, so check that out. I'm assuming it's Ryan. If it's somebody else, let me know. I've gotten to know a few great uh, Canadian content creators, so you know, could be someone else, but I bet it's Ryan. In any case, thank you so much to both of you for for leaving these nice reviews. It does help other people find the show. So if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or drop a nice note wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye. Long-term listener, Leanne, also known as Board Game Twitterbox on 
on Twitter. Board Game Chatterbox, you mean? Did I say what I said? Board Game Twitterbox. Board Game Twitterbox. <laughs>